0: Chapter 13 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vivian Weaver. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H. C. Adams. Chapter 13. The morning of the 22nd of January broke calm and clear on the valley of the Buffalo. At one end of this, as the reader has heard, was situated the Ford of Rourke's Drift, to which the occurrence of that day has given a worldwide celebrity. But for the fact that there are shallows close to it by which cavalry may almost always cross, there is nothing that could cause it to be chosen as a military station the valley indeed is open for some considerable distance above the drift but below it there rise rocky hills which would enable an enemy completely to command it on the north bank again which is in zululand the ground is level but on the natal side there is highland sloping abruptly down to the river at the point where the ford is shallowest from this point as well as from that before mentioned, the camp could be easily attacked, and probably with disastrous effect. It could therefore only be from the contempt of the most obvious dangers, which seems to be an inevitable feature in the English character that a military storehouse and hospital could have been built in such a situation. It must have been evident to everyone that, if a Zulu invasion, a thing which had already twice occurred, and which was now again apprehended with grave reason, were really to take place, and see the pour his dusky thousands across the buffalo, the stores and the sick men must be, at once and without hope of deliverance, at his mercy." in any case one would have supposed that this consideration would cause some anxiety in the minds of the slender garrison left in it when the three british columns had passed the frontier of zululand to attack its renowned and dreaded king all over natal if not all over southern africa it was considered as at all events very doubtful whether he would not prove too strong not indeed for the power of England to cope with, but for the number of troops now sent against him. And if he obtained even a temporary triumph, and forced Glen's column back over the river, what would all their lives be worth? Did not common prudence require the throwing up defenses of some kind, which might keep the enemy off? For some time, at least, until succor might arrive." the grand feat of arms which averted a second disaster has induced the world to disregard the strange imprudence exhibited here as at isundawana but had the result been different and had the garrison experienced the same fate as those who fell in the fatal battle on the morning of the same day the outcry would in all likelihood have been quite as loud and quite as justifiable but no thought of danger disturbed the equanimity of the slender force left to garrison their untenable post the men when the necessary camp duties had been discharged appeared to be sorely at a loss to know in what manner to employ their time the day was warm and bright and early in the forenoon it became oppressively hot some amused themselves by fishing in the adjoining river some strolled up and down or sat smoking and chatting in the veranda, or under such shade as could be found. At a little distance, in front of the Swedish pastor's house, van der Hayden and his sister were walking up and down, engaged in earnest conversation. "'I wish you would think better of this, Anchen,' he said. "'Mr. Bilderjik returns this morning to Colenso. He finds there is nothing to be done here.' which the pastor himself cannot do, nor is there likely to be anything. He will take you with him to his house, and thence you will find easily enough the means of conveyance to Newcastle, where a temporary residence has been engaged. There all the wagons and the goods which were saved from the wreck of Bushman's Drift have been conveyed. There, too, you can make the necessary preparations for the journey across the Transvaal which cannot be made here. You are resolved on settling at Dorf, then? Have I not told you so already? Bushman's Drift was completely destroyed by those fields of Umbelini's. It would take a great deal of time and money to restore it, and even were that otherwise, I could never endure the sight of the place again. I know, I know, murmured Anshin, as she laid her hand pityingly on his arm and Pidersdorf, resumed van der Hayden, is the place at which I have always wished to live, since it came into my possession. Additions to the house and farm buildings are needed, and these Hardy, the most competent man in these parts, has promised to undertake. We shall certainly set out as soon as I am free to travel, that is, as soon as Cetawayo has been put down, I suppose. But if you are to have no hand in putting him down, Why wait for that? I mean to have a hand in putting him down as a soldier. I know I must obey orders, and therefore I have stayed here. But I have been promised that I shall take the place of the first officer that is killed or disabled. Every day I am expecting to hear that a battle has been fought, and I am free to draw my sword. I must stay here. But, Henrik, may I not be as anxious to obtain the earliest information as yourself? Of the safety of Frank Moritz, suggested her brother, turning a scrutinizing look on her, or perhaps of someone else? Anshin colored. You have no right, no reason for asking me that, she said. I hope I have no reason, he answered. As for right, that is a different matter. Let us understand one another. It was never supposed that there was any romantic affection between you and Frank though you liked one another well enough to marry. But I have fancied once or twice that you were getting romantic about this young Englishman, Rivers. He is a fine fellow, I allow, and I admire and like him. But you shall never marry an Englishman with my consent. And though my control over you will cease after a time, you would no longer be a sister of mine if you were to marry one. I repeat, you have neither right nor reason to speak thus to me, she rejoined. Neither Mr. Rivers nor myself have said or done anything that could justify it, and I really think it would be better for me to leave Rourke's Drift. I have no doubt Mr. Bilderjik will give me permission to accompany him, and as he means to set out very soon, I will go and prepare for my journey. Goodbye, Henrik. Let us part as friends. They took leave of one another, and not long afterwards she was seen riding off in the Swedish pastor's company. Vander Hayden lounged up to the camp and joined some of the officers, who had gathered in a group near the storehouse, listening intently to some distant sounds borne by the wind from the eastern quarter. That is firing, I am sure, said Evitz, one of the volunteers, but it is a long way off. "'Yes, that is firing,' said the experienced Vander Hayden. "'But it is not volley firing. "'It is only some skirmishing, I expect. "'How long has it been going on?' "'I should think it began about an hour ago,' said Evitz. "'But it was very faint and irregular then. "'It has been getting more distinct for the last twenty minutes. "'It is just half-past twelve now,' he looked at his watch as he spoke." But ha, what is that? he added a moment afterwards, as a deep hollow boom came across the river. That is cannon. There is a battle going on at Isendwana. A good job, too, said Vander Hayden. It is time there was some fighting. People had begun to think there never was to be any. They continued to listen for a considerable time to the roar of the cannonade, which presently ceased and the desultory firing was again heard. "'The action is over,' observed Evitz. "'The Zulus never can face the guns very long.' "'Where's Margits?' inquired another officer after another hour's conversation. "'He and Balin have ridden out to the ford on the lower Tugela,' answered Evitts, with some letters which were to be forwarded to Pearson's camp. "'I have been on the lookout for them for some time.' And here they come, said Lieutenant Bromhead, the officer in command of the garrison. I know Margaret's horse, even at this distance. It is the horse, sure enough, said Hayden, as they drew nearer, but I don't think it is the man. No, he added a minute afterwards. It is Rivers, not Margaret's." Rivers, repeated Bromhead, and so it is. He must come from Issanwana. Depend upon it, he brings us the news of a victory. Well, Rivers, what is it? I am sorry to say, Mr. Bromhead, said George, saluting the officer in command. We have suffered a terrible defeat. The Zulus have broken into our camp and massacred nearly the whole of the companies of the 24th, the police, and the volunteers. All the guns, ammunition, and wagons have been taken. I should fear that nearly a thousand men have been slaughtered. Good heaven, you cannot mean it, said Evetts. Where is Lord Kelmsford? How can it have happened? It is no use asking either question now, said George. The Zulus are an immense force, ten or twelve thousand of them at the least. They are already, I expect, on the march to attack you. You must instantly retreat, or prepare to defend yourselves. We cannot retreat, said Bromhead it will be impossible to remove the wounded men and we cannot let them fall into the hands of the zulus besides it is of the utmost importance to maintain this post if it be possible we must throw up what defences we can and rather than surrender them die behind them he was answered by a general cheer and a cry of determination to defend the place as long as there was a cartridge left or a man to fire it as has already been intimated a worse position for defense than Rourke's Drift can hardly be imagined. The two small, frail buildings were more than a hundred feet apart from one another. The walls were thin, the doors weak, the roofs thatched, and easily set on fire. On two sides there was rising ground from which they could be completely commanded. On a third, they could be approached under cover within a few yards distance. There was neither wall nor breastwork nor trench, nothing, in fact, to keep an enemy back. The attacking party would probably consist of some thousands of desperate and well-armed savages flushed with victory. The defenders were one hundred and four in number, for the native contingent withdrew before the approach of the enemy, and they were cumbered with the care of thirty-five sick men. They went to work, however, with a will, and for more than two hours employed themselves in loopholing the walls and constructing barricades between the two houses. These consisted of two wagons, which had fortunately been left at the station, and of piles of sacks filled with mealies and biscuit-boxes, the parapet thus formed being only a few feet high. It looked more like a mock fortification put together for a schoolboy's game, than for the purpose of a real battle. The rude defenses were still incomplete when the dark masses of the enemy were seen crowding the rising ground to the south, and the foremost lines made a sudden charge down the hill, intending to carry the place by a coup de main. But when they approached within fifty yards, they were met by a fire so heavy as to check even their triumphant advance." Instead of continuing their rush, they withdrew into whatever cover they could find, and fired from behind hollows in the hillside, trees and shrubs and garden wall, every now and then rushing forward and trying to force their way in, until driven back by the weapon they dreaded most of all, the British Bayonet. End of chapter 13